Hello and welcome to Upstage the Podcast, your weekly dose of theatre news and reviews. I'm Rachel. And I'm Abby. Apologies for the lack of episode last week. We had a mini summer break, but we are now back with what we hoped would be more theatre news. It's summer, isn't it? Nobody's really doing anything, so not too much theatre news, but a few bits and pieces. And then we will be starting the 1970s in our musical decade series. So first, the news. So the first bit of news is that the cast has been announced for Wasted, the new Bronte musical, which is opening at Southwark Playhouse in September. Charlotte Bronte will be played by Natasha Barnes, who we mentioned in a recent episode because we saw her in Funny Girl at the Savoy when she was the understudy for Sheridan Smith, and she was excellent. She was brilliant in that. She was so good. Yeah, she's really good, so I think that'll be really exciting and it's nice to see her getting starring roles in something that I think will be hopefully a big hit but I think will have quite a big impact in the theatre world kind of either way being um a new musical yeah so Emily Bronte will be played by Siobhan Athwal and Molly Lynch will play Anne Bronte and Matthew Jacobs Morgan will be playing Branwell Bronte so yeah this production will be directed by Adam Lenson who directed The Rink which we reviewed a few episodes ago as well so i think it's quite a good team that's being brought together couple of bits of news about productions that are going to be screened in cinemas which is quite exciting so alleluia which is the new alan bennett play is going to be broadcast by national theater live so that's going to be on the first of november it's currently showing at the bridge theater with a quite big cast it's had really really good reviews so hopefully i'm gonna get down and see it i think abby you're seeing it as well i am i'm seeing it in a few weeks I'm seeing it quite soon. Very good. But if you can't get down to London to see it, you can see it in cinemas worldwide on the 1st of November. Another thing that's being shown in cinemas is the production of Funny Girl starring Sheridan Smith, which has obviously been closed for a couple of years now, but is being shown again in cinemas nationwide on 24th of October. So end of October, beginning of November. Quite a few good things to see at the cinema. Yeah, I think it's good. It's always good to um, get wider audiences. The sort of money that is pumped into West End theatre and big London theatres is a lot more than in regional theatres. So the productions yeah. are a whole different scale and I think it's it's great to be able to spread that nationwide and worldwide. I just think, why wouldn't you want the audience for a show to be as big as possible? You know? I yeah. agree, especially with a show like Funny Girl, which is closed, so it's not even... Yeah. Possibly, because I can, I know from a producer it's saying, you know, if people can see it in the cinema and it's cheaper, why would they come and see it? Which I think is a stupid argument because the atmosphere of live theatre is just completely different anyway. But um, yeah, I like this trend of more things being being shown. Every production is filmed for archives and most of them have like good professional recordings. So it's a waste for them just to be sat around with no one watching them. Speaking of, there's also been a little bit of chat about the Hamilton recording from their original Broadway cast, and this won't be for years yet, but there's been some chat about possibly Netflix buying the rights to that, which would be a whole other great way of sharing theatre. Like, literally beaming it into everyone's house. Just imagine, like, Broadway HD trying to bid against Netflix. <laughs> I know, bless. Broadway HD, they're like, we'll be the Netflix for theatre, and Netflix like, I think we'll be the Netflix we'll be for theatre. Thanks. you will. Thanks very much. It'll be interesting to see if they do get Hamilton, if they then also try and like build up any sort of... Because knowing what they're bidding on normally, it must be cheaper for them to bid on theatre. 
So it'd be yeah, interesting to see if they try to build up a section of Netflix that's specifically theatre. I imagine they just want Hamilton because it's a big name and won't be that interested in anything else. But uh, they could get... Obviously, the Book of Woman must have a recording and that isn't anywhere as far as I know. So, I mean, that is was a huge show. That is true. Matilda was huge. Things like yeah. that that aren't kind of shown elsewhere. I think it's tricky because things like Broadway HD, which I love in theory, can't compete with things like Netflix on price point. Like, they've got to charge more oh. money. Because yeah. they're a smaller operation, so... And they don't have... I mean, they have some really good stuff on there, but they don't have much stuff to keep you subscribing monthly. So I imagine exactly. a lot of people will sign up, watch everything in, like, a couple of weeks and then cancel their subscription, which is a shame. Yeah, because I watch falsettos there and have never watched anything else. Yeah. Some more Lin-Manuel Miranda news, because he's not busy enough at the moment. He has signed up to produce an eight-episode series about the partnership between Bob Fosse and the actress Gwen Verdon. So that's going to be on FX in the US. It's based on a biography of Fosse called Fosse. It was written by Stephen Levinson, who wrote Dear Evan Hansen, and it's going to be directed and choreographed by, respectively, Tommy Cale and Andy Blankenbuehler, who obviously both worked on Hamilton. So the creative team back together again sam rockwell is going to star as bob fossey and michelle williams is going to star as gwen verdon so filming is happening soon this autumn i think and the show is going to broadcast in 2019 the last thing is that the west end production of network starring brian cranston is going to be transferring to broadway in november with brian cranston starring so this is an ivo van hove production which was on at the national theater in november 2017 and it's going to be at the Court Theatre on Broadway from this November for 18 weeks. So Brian Cranston won the Olivier Award for Best Actor for his role in Network. So exciting that Broadway audiences will get to see that too. It's quite a lot transferring from the National to Broadway at the moment, isn't there? Because they do good stuff. Yeah, they do. They do. We're very lucky to have the National because also it's not too expensive. Extremely true. So that's this week's Theatre News. Now on to the next in our Musical Decade series. So, moving into the 1970s. And the 1970s open with a bang with Jesus Christ Superstar, which hit Broadway in 1971. I'm sure everyone knows at least the song Jesus Christ Superstar from this show. It's one of the big, iconic, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Tim Rice hits. But surprisingly, only actually ran on Broadway for 711 performances. It was on the West End a year later in 1972 at the Palace Theatre that it really kind of took off in a massive way where it ran for eight years that's 3358 performances which is quite a few rachel do you want to tell us what jesus christ superstar is about <laughs> i was actually just gonna take it way way back to when andrew the weber and tim rice first met so they were very very young so tim rice was 20 and andrew the weber was 17 17 years old when they started very- collaborating And it was only six years later that they were working on Jesus Christ Superstar. So incredibly young. Andrew Webber was 23 when he was working on this show. Disgusting, to be honest. That really is disgusting. Isn't it? Jesus Christ Superstar actually first came out as a concept album. Because obviously it's such a potentially controversial subject. So the single Superstar was released in 1969 and then the full album in 1970. And the sort of feel of the show is much more of a i hate the term rock opera but it's more of a rock opera than sort of anything that had come before it funnily enough uh the bbc actually banned the album so it you you couldn't get it in the uk you couldn't listen to it but it really took off in the us and topped the billboard charts so a producer called robert stigwood 
saw sort of the potential in the show and bought production rights and started sort of planning how to get it to Broadway. So what is Jesus Christ Superstar about? Surprisingly, it's about Jesus. It's about the sort of the final days of Jesus, but much more from the point of view of Judas and also featuring quite a lot of Mary Magdalene and her relationship with Jesus. That's where the big song, I Don't Know How to Love Him, comes from. A great song. So it was... It, there was a lot of controversy among religious groups because of the sympathetic portrayal of Judas in the show and the sort of hints at a sort of less than holy relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. I mean, like, please, please, we all know they were sleeping together. And there were sort of demonstrations outside the theatre and that kind of thing. But there were some Christian groups that, you know, appreciated the musical for bringing the story of Jesus to a brand new audience the nature of the score made it sort of more appealing to young people and I guess that sort of educated a lot of people who might otherwise have been interested in religious teachings which is you know quite nice admirable you might say so Jesus Christ Superstars had kind of worldwide legacy it's been staged in over 40 countries and is revived kind of continuously and on tour all over the world. And in 1973, so very quickly after the show first hit stage, a film version opened. And interestingly, Melvin Bragg was the screenwriter for that, which is surprising. And the film grossed more than $24 million in the US alone, which is not half bad. So, although it didn't last that long in its initial run on Broadway, I think Jesus Christ Superstar's lasting legacy is massive. Which is sort of evidenced in the fact that NBC chose it this year as their live musical and that they got such an amazing cast to be in it. So, John Legend played Jesus, uh, Sarah Bareilles played Mary Magdalene, Brandon Victor Dixon played Judas, and the production of that was incredible. The sort of the staging and the performances were really brilliant, I think. You can probably watch that online somewhere if you haven't seen it and you're interested in the score or the show or even just the performances. Like, John Legend was fantastic as Jesus. And I think it's interesting because I feel like I see a lot of Broadway and West End performers now saying that these roles are sort of among their dream roles. Mm. Um, So there's something about that score and the energy of the show that people really kind of engage with and connect to. So, yeah. The next musical we're going to talk about is Pippin, which opened in 1972. This is based on a book by Roger Hurston and music and lyrics by Stephen Schwartz, who later went on to write a little-known show called Wicked that you might have heard of. So this opened at the Imperial Theatre in October 1972. It's sort of hard to explain what Pippin is about because it's quite a surreal show. It's loosely based on the story of one of the sons of King Charlemagne. It follows the prince, who is Charlemagne's eldest son and heir, as he's sort of literally wandering around the countryside trying to find his purpose. He sings a beautiful song called Corner of the Sky, which I adore, sort of about he's got to find his place in the world and how is he going to do it. It's like an old school Avenue Q with no puppets. (laughs) So he tries a bunch of different things to try and find out what he's supposed to be, what he's supposed to be doing. He tries out home life with a young woman named Catherine and her son and then it sort of it gets a bit dark and he's sort of lured into the idea of suicide as the ultimate method of sort of living life to the full but at the last second he changes his mind and goes back to a boring but happy life with Catherine which is lovely. Pippin is followed round during the show by a character called the leading player who is sort of directing his actions like a puppet master. He talks to the audience but not to Pippin himself which is quite interesting and there's also sort of a weird circus troupe that are on stage and it's very it's just very surreal 
It's a very, very surreal show. And all of the kind of surrealism is enhanced by Bob Fosse's choreography. So a lot of what I think people think of when they think of Bob Fosse, the like kind of hand movements and stuff, maybe doesn't come from Pippin, but is really, really present in the Pippin original choreography. So it's... It's really iconic choreography. Yeah. So it's a lot of kind of jazz hands and like sort of it's hard to, it's like small isolated movements and quite slow yes which i think is very different to the big broadway massive dance numbers very broad very flashy that yeah. had been very prominent before mr fossey one thing we should highlight is the particular importance of the leading player as a role so ben vereen played the leading player in the original cast and won a tony award for the role and interestingly in the 2013 Broadway revival Patina Miller played the role so it was gender flipped and she also won a Tony for the role and that's the first time and perhaps the only time that a musical has featured actors of different genders playing the same role and they've both won Tonys for it. I feel like we should also say that this is another show that was written by someone offensively young. Yes. Um, so Stephen Schwartz had the idea for Pippin while he was in college and it opened in 1972, just a year after Godspell, which is another massive Stephen Schwartz musical, which meant that by the time Pippin opened and Stephen Schwartz was 24 years old, he was one of the youngest composer, lyricist in Broadway to have two shows playing at the same time on Broadway. And that is, that is just insane. Like, 24 is very young. It's very, very young. Can you imagine? I haven't even written one musical yet. No, you haven't. And I'm, I'm about to turn 27. No. The last show that we're going to talk about this week is another Andrew Loeber and Tim Rice show. This is Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. So this is back to the Bible, back to religion as a source material for the two of them. There's just so much in the Bible. I don't know why they didn't keep going with the Bible. I want, <laughs> I want every verse, you know? I want, I want a Moses musical. That's what I want next. Exodus the musical, um, the Garden of Eden the musical. I said I want a Moses musical. The Prince of Egypt does exist and it's a great film, so I don't really need another one, do I? Great film. That is an exceptional film. Stephen Schwartz was involved in that one as well. Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat is essentially the story of Joseph from the Bible. So Joseph had many brothers and they didn't like him because he was his dad's favourite, basically. And he got a really snazzy coat from his dad, which so was snazzy. so snazzy, many colours, a real bold fashion statement. And his brothers were just not that keen on him, so sold him into slavery and basically faked it to look like he had died. Whole thing, you know, not a great plan. But then he ended up in Egypt I mean, everyone knows the story of Joseph, don't they? Right? There were dreams. He could basically figure out what the dreams meant, which meant the Pharaoh loved him, which meant that he did really well in Egypt and became quite prominent. And then his brothers kind of needed to come to him and ask for help. And he was, you know, just living the dream in his snazzy coat. That's Joseph. (laughs) The Bible, according to Abby. What a great plot summary. You should rewrite the whole Bible. I mean... Maybe I will. You know what? Maybe I will. Maybe you should. So I feel like Joseph is definitely one of the most iconic Android Webber. And I feel like it was... So it opened in 1973, but I feel like it was absolutely 
everywhere when we were kids. In choir when I was a child, every song that we had to sing was from Joseph. I used to know all of the colours, like, to the extended edition. Like, the massive long paragraph of about 40 colours. I used to know them all. We did Close Every Door, very dramatically. Nice, I love that song. I mean, there are. I think there are genuinely some great songs from Joseph. Yeah. Any Dream Will Do is an absolute classic. Little known fact, my father played Joseph in his high school production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and my nan sewed the coat for him, and it was Technicolor. Wow. Does he still have that coat? He does not still have the coat, sadly, but he still knows all the words. That's very sad. That he doesn't have the coat, or that he knows all the words. Not that he knows all the words, that's obviously... (laughs) Excellent. It's he was a, sad. he was a good Joseph. He was very proud to be Joseph, I think. I think it's a great role and was one of the roles that Andrew Lloyd Webber did one of his TV shows for, which obviously Lee Mead won. What a gem. I did not want him to win at the time. I wanted Ben to win. But now, having come to terms with that, I do actually quite like Lee Mead. I think he's got a nice voice. I think he's just fine. I would like to say that my favourite ever version of Close Every Door is, of course the gareth gates version which is beautiful and on youtube if you'd like to go and listen although i've never seen a production of joseph live neither have i i don't think yeah it's not been in the west end in quite a while but it does it's constantly touring it feels like around the uk yeah i feel like if you if you're desperate to see joseph there's probably one in driving distance i'm pretty sure all of the like contestants from that joseph show played joseph at some point i'm i swear all of them did So the show opened in February 1973 at the Albury Theatre in London. And it didn't actually make it to Broadway until 82. So quite a long time. And it only lasted until September 83 there. So hasn't been as big of an American success. I think the reason that it's such a big part of our childhood is because then it's kind of, I think it's biggest West End production opened in 1991 at the London Palladium. It was a kind of bigger bolder version of Joseph and of course starred the iconic Jason Donovan Mm -hmm. and the cast album of that production was the UK number one for two weeks in September 1991. So an interesting parallel is that although nobody's ever won a Tony for Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, the character of the narrator who is sort of out of the action, not sort of of the time and place but um, narrates the story obviously and guides the audience through um, has been played by both a man and a woman which is is a nice parallel to Pippin. So that is the beginning of the 1970s. Lots still to come. I think next week we're going to do a sort of deep dive into the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is a fantastic film and score. So get ready for that because it's going to be good. Ball bulletin. I don't think there's any Michael Ball news this week. That's devastating. He's probably having a nice summer break, isn't he? Yeah, he's just living his life, isn't he? I think he is. he has done a couple of this morning things, potentially. That's nice for him. Yeah. Any other business? I feel like I have to say, even though the whole world's saying it, that Mamma Mia 2 is just pure joy. Just an excellent film. I don't think I'm going to see it. What you have to. I, right, I don't like the first one. Well, first of all, you're wrong. I've watched it many, many times. The soundtrack is obviously fantastic, but the actual plot line is so painfully bad. And... Like, Amanda Seyfried is just not good in it. Like, oh, you are wrong. No, nah, I'm not wrong. Meryl, of course, is, an, is a goddess. And wrong. Christine Baranski and Julie enjoying... Walters are fantastic. But, like, everything between Dominic Cooper and Amanda Seyfried makes me want to rip out my own eyes. And Pierce oh, Brosnan trying to sing is literally painful to me. I mean, I think you're completely wrong. Because I think they are just 
such fun films. Like, I think it's very rare to see a film when you're just watching it and you're thinking, these people are having so much fun. I just think it's so lovely because it doesn't take itself too seriously and it's just... I mean, I I'll, I'll probably watch it, like, fun. when it's on DVD at some point or on Netflix just for the fun of it. Oh, you know what? I kind of think I enjoyed the second one more than the first one. Christine Baranski in every role is pretty much everything I want to be. And also, and I don't re- I don't know if this was the same with the first one, but because like it was before I moved to London and saw loads of stuff. So many of the ensemble, I'll say, not extras, because it has kind of a very classic musical theatre ensemble in that it's the same people you're seeing over and over again for the background roles. Um... I just kept recognising people from West End shows. So I'd see people in the background and be like, oh, you're in, you're in Rent. Or one of the guys who was in The Rink that I saw the other week and stuff. Like, there's so many, like, pretty much all of them were West End performers. And that's really nice to see. I just thought it was so, very few things are just pure joy. And it was just pure joy. I watched Capote recently, the trimming capote film starring philip seymour hoffman um about the writing of in cold blood i enjoyed that very very much very much would recommend i now have the book to read which is exciting i also finished i'll be gone in the dark which was great and i'm now reading little fires everywhere by celeste ong which is good so far i'm enjoying very very much also been watching season two of love island which is just as dramatic and exciting as everybody promised by far the best one yet Yes, that's right, Abby. Now that the current season of Love Island is finished, I'm going back and watching the old seasons on Netflix. I have nothing to say to you about that, to be honest. <laughs> oh, and I finished season two of The Crown, which I enjoyed thoroughly, and I'm very excited for season three and Olivia Colman and Helena Bonham Carter and all of that. Although I will very much miss Claire Foy and Matt Smith. Is that it for this week? I think so. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks again for bearing with us during a slight summer hiatus last week, and we'll see you next week. See you then. Bye. Bye.